Well, thank you, Bruce, again for your kind words. It's uh, a real pleasure to be able to encourage you and to work with you and for you to encourage us. And that's greatly appreciated. Yes, I still have the old folder that I was given the very first time I was here. It's the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture folder, which I pulled out for this occasion. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to uh, talk about uh, something that continues, uh, builds on uh, some of the things that were important to Francis Schaeffer in his thinking uh, and in his life and work. I'm pleased to be able to address you as the Schaefer Association. I think that's what you are. Uh, that is indeed a, a good and wonderful thing. And I hope that uh, you personally and intellectually and the culture around you benefits from your interest in the work, the ideas that are associated with Francis and Edith Schaefer. At the time when I first came in touch with them, in contact with them, which was 1960, uh, in the last century, not the one before, um, there was no such thing as a book by, published by Schaefer, nor were there tapes, uh, except one that somebody had uh, recorded in, on a lecture tour in Cambridge in England. But apart from that, it was just a place where you could go and... Uh, come with your questions and concerns about life and your studies and the world around us. Uh, uh, so close to the end of uh, the Second World War and so much in the middle of the Cold War to uh, inquire of a wise man what he thought, why he thought that way, and see how the conversation with him would uh, teach you some things, but may also alter his own perception on things. Uh, I remember my brother bringing to him the uh, then upcoming struggles that our society would face, uh, our world would face, with increasing populations, with increasing resource use, with increasing ecological problems that my brother brought to Schaefer that he hadn't thought about. Uh, I brought some other things to him, such as uh, the influence of Kantian philosophy, uh, on uh, Western thought that he uh, didn't at that point see as clearly as he would later and you would find that discussion in uh, books like uh, The God Who Is There or How Should We Then Live. Uh, I'd briefly like to draw your attention to some of the books that I have written and they're published in their back there and you may gaze upon them and look at them and if you want to own one I would be very pleased to sell it to you. There's also a piece of paper in the middle in which uh, you may want to give me your name and address uh, for uh, receiving a publication that the Francis Schaeffer Foundation, which I direct with my wife, uh, sends out three or four times a year. And it's called Footnotes, and that's all it claims to be. It's footnotes on issues and questions, concerns, happenings, and so forth, that uh, work on my mind and I give you my reflection, my observation, sometimes my provocative uh, statements. Uh, I've had people wish to be taken off the list because they didn't like what I was saying. Mind you, there are very few of those, but they are. They do exist. Anyway, you may want to put your name on there. For tonight, I'd like to address the subject that was given, recovering the fundamentals and the freedoms in the Bible.
form and freedom were something very important to Francis Schaeffer's thought and thinking in the observation that we live in the universe which is not so filled with form that there is no space for human activity and imagination and choice. Nor was it so controlled by human activity and choice that it was a universe of randomness. For he, at one point in uh, uh, The God Who Is There, as well as in How Should We Then Live, points out that Christianity, the Bible, is the only framework that allows for the form to not swallow up the freedom and the freedom to not destroy the form. Excessive form always leads to dictatorship when everything is controlled. Excessive freedom leads to anarchy when there is no security or confidence in anything. And so the discussion of form and freedom was something very important to him. It came not from a theological reflection, but rather from the observation of life itself. In life itself, we encounter form and freedom. One of my silly little illustrations is that we all know what, I, what you mean or what I mean when I say I would like to have some coffee, which is standing right there. Well, in one way that is of course coffee, but in another way it isn't the kind of coffee that I would prefer. Mind you, that's all that was available and I like it as it comes, but there, we all have a different understanding of what coffee is. We all have a different understanding of what democracy is. We have a principal understanding that it has something to do with the demos, the people, as they express themselves, but how that, has happened, how that happens and what they express themselves over and to what extent the people need to be educated before they have the right and obligation to express themselves and when would it be better for them to be quiet for a little while is something that we may all gauge somewhat differently and yet we understand the central term, the form as it were, the foundation of what a democracy is and so it is with many things. The nature of love, uh, the person of God, um, what is a marriage, etc. all has a definition in our language system. We know it applies to a particular reality and yet that particular reality has many expressions and many experiences and many uh, at times also misunderstandings. Anyway, form and freedom is something very essential and Schaefer would point out that that's not surprising. In fact, that's what I always said when I was teaching in Russia back in the 90s. I did teacher training seminars for weeks on end all over the Russian provinces uh, for seven years. And uh, in the Q&A, there would inevitably come the question, you know, you seem to be a person who's thought about these things a bit. How come you believe that three equals one? Uh, the Trinity is a big problem for the materialist as well as for anybody who uh, tries to do mathematics, how can three be one? And I would point out that indeed there is no way to say three equals one in any other way than to say three equals one. And I don't mean nonsense, what I mean is that we live in the universe in which there is one God and yet three persons. There is a unity and a diversity all the way back in the Godhead himself. And therefore, we must not be surprised if in his creation we also find unity and diversity. We cannot resolve it any further than that, except to give names to the three persons of the, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we can't uh, reduce the Trinity into a simple formula that uh, resolves the tension between three and one or between three really distinct persons who as Jesus says in the high priestly prayer of John 17 
loved each other, which of course is a choice, it's an activity, it's an enjoyment. There's a time component to loving each other. It is not a silent stare. It is an enjoyment of one another with a give and take of real exchange of uh, information, of pleasure, of uh, satisfaction, of love, etc. And so the Bible's answer is that precisely we live in a universe in which form and freedom are very real because God himself is three persons in one Godhead. So for the Christian, there's nothing strange about saying that we live in a world of unity and diversity. Without the biblical basis, you always will find a tendency to either resolve the tension in the direction of form, dictatorship, or freedom, anarchy. And only the Bible allows you to, that, to, to express a true tension uh, in the dynamic of the relationship in the Godhead, and thus also a resolution to the question of which, what, or what I mean when I say I would like to have a cup of coffee. You'll give me something that is not applesauce. Now, where that comes in with Schaefer, of course, is that, uh, as some of you know, we live part of the year in New York, which is known as a city for very tall buildings. The first skyscraper was 12 stories high. It was made possible uh, because the structure was not made of brick but of steel and the brick was hung on the outside of the steel. This was back a hundred and some years ago. It's a, it's a skyscraper that is only about six or 26 or so feet wide and with some depth on a certain street. Uh, the narrow side is on Broadway and the longer side is down, I think it's Fulton Street. And it was built by a man who had full confidence in the steel. And everybody laughed and said, this building is too narrow and the wind will blow it over. And they laughed so long that he finally, the builder finally decided to try it himself. And he climbed up to the 12th story and the wind blew and the wind blew. And contrary to the little house that uh, the wolf blew over, the house remained. And that was the beginning of New York skyscrapers. Of course, there are many others. The diversity of skyscrapers in New York is fascinating number that are being torn down and replaced with other structures and the diversity of architectural shapes is remarkable, stimulating, amazingly uh, wonderful to be admired in taste and tastelessness, uh, variety depending on your personal uh, freedom of opinion. Uh, the other thing that made skyscrapers possible above the 12th story was the invention of a system that safeguards elevators. Until then, you only had pulley systems where you pulled up this thing, and if the road broke, rope broke, then the thing crashed to the floor, which meant that elevators were only used for merchandise, but not for people. People had to climb stairs. So it's too risky. Until Mr. Otis, that's why you have Otis elevators, invented a system that indicated to a couple of pins on the side when the rope on which the elevator hung got loose. That is, when the tension was lost, then these things would come out and lock the elevator in place. And that made it possible to use elevators also for people. They were now safe. They could crawl out on either the upper floor or the lower floor. There is much diversity in this and fascinating the playfulness of human beings with the stuff that makes possible such diverse expressions of individuality 
uh, within the same label of skyscraper, safety, etc., etc. We all understand what that basically means. The real base possibility of building skyscrapers in New York over a hundred years ago, however, lay in the fact that the whole island is made of stone. Not sand, not uh, pebbles, not uh, anything less solid than stone itself. And I'd like to use the illustration of that solid foundation which then allows you to build the World Trade Center anew up to 1776 feet or the Empire State Building built within a year back in 1932 or the Chrysler Building shortly before then or all the other buildings that are there now including those somewhat uh, narrow and scary skyscrapers that are built uh, along uh, 57th Street where you now can buy an apartment for 46 million usually by uh, Russians that have uh, find, found diverse ways to come to that money. Um, nevertheless, uh, I'd like to use that illustration for the larger discussion of form and freedom and as it relates to Schaeffer's own mind and perception. I was asked recently in a conversation with a gentleman in New York what made Schaeffer so different from others and why is that what he brought to the discussion of truth and man and woman in society often so different from what you usually hear in evangelical circles, much less in other circles. And I suggest that the difference is that Schaefer had the solid foundation of the rocks of New York or the solid foundation of the confidence in God's existence and the truth of his word that he could be free to explore very many different ways to relate to human beings on the basis of the solid understanding that a human being is made in the image of God and distinct from all other creation, he could face the fact that we are always a surprise and sometimes a disappointment to each other. We are unfathomably different and unique as human beings. And it is this balance between the form, the certainty, and this awareness of surprise, being willing to be surprised or having not a final conclusion in difficult subjects of life itself that marked out Schaefer, the freedom to be so solidly anchored and the freedom to be so widely open to alternatives, to surprises, as well as, of course, to disappointments. He didn't have final solutions. That is a matter of ideologies. That's a matter of human beings trying to play God when they come up with an ideological answer or a Christian answer for everything that has to be so watertight or so uh, uh, exclusive that a person is no longer surprised. I think extreme Calvinism is of such a nature that it explains everything away under the label of the sovereignty of God and that everything is an expression of the will of God. Mind you, that isn't what scripture teaches, uh, otherwise there would be no justification for the disappointment that Jesus expresses or the frustration that God the Father expresses with the people of Israel at times or the struggles that we need to go through in order to transform ourselves into a people that are a little more obedient to God's law in the fulfillment or in the search for fulfillment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's the form and the freedom that was important to Schaefer. The form came from the recognition that there is one truth to the universe. There is an inalienable, if you want, an unchanging foundation upon which existence takes place. Water always runs downhill. Time can never be recuperated. Words can never be taken back. 
there is a form to the universe, but there is also the freedom, the openness, the surprising elements of what human beings and what God, what Christ, what the Holy Spirit can do in real history, as well as, of course, that nasty fellow, the devil, who interferes from time to time as well. Schaefer himself gave lectures on the subject. Uh, there is in the, uh, in the uh, material upstairs a talk that is called The Ultimate Limits of Christianity. It's sort of a discussion of the sine qua non of Christianity. When have you gone overboard with such freedom that you no longer have Christianity? What is essential? What are the essential building blocks without which you don't have a coherent view of things nor a representation or a presentation, rather, of Christianity itself. I remember a sermon he preached in St. Louis in a uh, United Presbyterian Church with a subject of what is enough, when do you, have you gone too far in the openness in order to lose precisely access to the specificity of Christianity itself. There's a book written, Church at the End of the 20th Century, there is a chapter called Two Contents and Two Realities in which he laments the fact that so much of the church has become existential in its outlook, interpreting scripture according to wish and whim of the wind of the day, as it were, depending on what they feel like. That's too much freedom. There is a boundary. There are absolute limits to Christianity. Uh, Schaefer received that from the clarity of doctrine, I dare say doctrine, though I'm hesitant because it wasn't the doctrine of his denomination which tends to be the Westminster Confession. The first question asked in Presbyterian circles so often is, well, what do you hold of the, of the Westminster Confession? Seeing it sort of as the uh, complete representation of scripture. And Schaefer always pointed out that we, our faith is not based on what we understand from the Westminster Confession, but rather, rather the summary of all those things that Scripture gives us to understand, which is something you never come to the end of. And thus you reread the Scriptures and you adjust your understanding of it in light of greater fidelity to the text, in light of the complexity of how words mean things, the nature of language is precisely that it's not precise, it cannot be measured in weights or length or volume. It carries meaning as a metaphor relating to something substantive of reality, but it isn't the same as the reality itself. You know, that is the uh, uh, Raphael's, I think it is, uh, presentation of Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers, that is in the Sistine Chapel. Well, of course not. It's in this room and it's not, a rep it's not that, it's a copy of it and so forth. So there's a distance to it. Yet nevertheless, there is such a thing as the clarity of understanding of which the Westminster Confession for Schaeffer was a good summary, but not the final word. He differed with certain aspects of it. Among them, his Schaeffer's rejection of the extreme kind of Calvinism. I remember a vivid conversation at the end of the presentation of the film series, How Should We Then Live? in Dallas, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, when somebody in the Big auditorium, big gymnasium where the film was being shown, and Schaefer was sitting there on his chair on a table. And somebody from the balcony asked the question, you know, Are you a four or a five point Calvinism? And uh, he said, Neither. Neither. I'm a Christian. I believe that Calvin had some good things to say, 
Uh, you emphasize a certain things of scripture which are valuable, but on the other hand, if you go too far with Calvin and you end up with some kind of a divine determinism, then you're outside of the realm of scripture itself. So there was first the clarity of doctrine. Uh, you study the Bible in order to understand it, and you don't get it the first time around. You get something, but you have to reread it, rethink it, discuss it, think of the alternatives, figure out, as you must do with any document, what does it say, what does it not say, and how could it possibly mean this, and what could it not possibly mean, what could it possibly never mean. That's what you learn in law school, and that's what you have to do with any text that's you sign, whether it's a contract or whether it's somebody's uh, report or whether it is the scriptures itself. It is this absolute certainty that Schaefer had in contrast to what he thought was the danger in uh, neo-orthodoxy. Uh, Karl Barth, there's a letter to Karl Barth, or from Karl Barth downstairs uh, in, the, in the, what do you call it, uh, presentation, a layout or so, uh, of the material. Uh, Schaefer went to Europe precisely to work against the influence of Barthian neo-orthodox theology because according to Barth, God is basically the unable to communicate directly. He has to speak indirectly and thus you don't have the confidence that you ever understand it because it's forever indirect. It isn't that the multiplicity of sentences, textual passages, the multiplicity of refining adjectives to a noun which limit the possibility of erroneous understanding uh, is intended by God and directs our understanding of it. The whole thing, the whole character of God, because he's infinite and therefore totally others from us, cannot communicate direct knowledge or true knowledge or true truth to the human being and thus everything is a matter of belief, of faith, of a leap of faith uh, following the Kierkegaardian uh, suggestion. But the second thing, besides the confidence in Scripture itself, in the doctrine of the Bible, the basic presentation of Scripture, was a measure of personal honesty. Uh, he lived a life, he saw life as basically tragic and found in, in that one of the central confirmations of what the Bible talks about. We now live in a world in which human beings are separate from God. We've been kicked out of the garden. There's a gate, not physically, but there's a gate, a limitation. But we have the texts of the letters that God has written to us by the prophets, by the apostles, under the control of the Holy Spirit so that we have something to study and to figure, try to figure out. Uh, Schaeffer's attitude towards life was not optimistic, but basically pessimistic on the level that until Christ returns we will always not only have the poor with us but we will also have a flawed understanding and we will have the reality of a fallen world that is not a pleasure to God in its fallenness. There is a, a picture, there was a picture in Schaefer's bedroom where he worked on his bed. bed was made and then he spread out his material on the bedspread, the foot of the bed and sat on a low chair and that's where he worked. And behind one of the curtains by the window was a collection of pieces that Schaefer had pinned there in order to remind himself not to be too optimistic about the real world. And there was a little newspaper clipping about a 22 or 25 year old girl who lived with her parents. And because she had gone out with a young man without asking her parents, 
The father was furious over the disobedience of his 22 or 25 year old daughter and took her out into, it was in Arizona, took her out into the desert and there gave her a gun and said, now shoot the dog that you brought with you. And, uh, you know, this is the ridiculous cruelty of people to each other. There was a picture of a beautiful... She shot herself, sorry, yes, she shot herself. Thank you. Um, there was a, a picture that is on the front of uh, my book, The Innocence of God, uh, that uh, has a title called If Only, and it shows a person uh, in some drab dress uh, behind a fence, a barbed wire fence. The sun is on the other side, and it's a picture of somebody in a concentration camp wishing to be free from the horror of uh, that experience imposed by human beings. And it's if only, and I use it as if only we can be sure that God is innocent of the evil that exists in the fallen world. And then there were other things. There was a picture of a Hungarian girl, beautiful blonde girl, standing up to one of the Soviet tanks in 1956 at the Hungarian Revolution, and a few other clippings. And with these, Schaefer constantly reminded himself of the reality of the world in which we live, lest he become too optimistic about the human race. And the third element, that's the element of honesty, the third element was the desire to continuously inquire whether our understanding, his understanding of any subject he touched on was accurate or not. It was a willingness to be open to new information, to re-examine. It's summed up so beautifully in the phrase, in the sentence, the answer he gave in the last discussion he had in Knoxville in 1985, uh, 84, 84. Uh, in the last Lopri conference when somebody asked him, uh, what is the reason to be a Christian, why should one believe? And he said, the only reason to be a Christian is that you're, true, you're confident, you uh, are sure that it is the truth of the universe. It's this internal curiosity from the recognition that we are finite. Secondly, we live in a fallen world. Thirdly, we're all personally handicapped because we wish to know in the realization that we don't know finally everything, completely in a sense of totality, uh, that we need to constantly have an open mind. We need to be willing to have our faith put in doubt. In fact, doubt is the approach that Schaefer treasured and valued uh, precisely because he was a human being and not God, precisely because we live outside of Eden and precisely because Christ has not yet come back and the evidence of the world around us uh, speaks as much for God as it speaks against God when you uh, look at it in its brokenness, in its contradictions, etc., etc. You also must know, in order to understand a little more fully, it seems to me, that Schaefer grew up theologically as a, when he became a Christian and then when he went to seminary at a time in which there was the height, which was the height uh, or the tail end of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Those of you who study theology will have heard about it. It was the introduction of German higher criticism in biblical studies uh, at Princeton seminaries in the early part of the 20th century, 1890s to 1910, a man called Briggs. Uh, there were trials, etc., and in the early decade of the 20th century, effort was made to resist this influence of the higher critical theories of uh, multiple authors, authors 
to the scriptures, representing the Bible only as a document of various religious uh, interpretations of realities, but not as the Word of God. Uh, <clears throat> it entered Princeton and there was a heightened discussion. There was a series of uh, journals, uh, five volume books with 90 different articles on the essentials, on the fundamentals of Christianity. That's where the term fundamentalism comes from. Uh, though the somewhat uh, questionable association with that term arises later in the 20s and 30s. Initially, it was an effort by Warfield and others to establish the sine qua non, the building blocks, the foundation for Christianity. And if you take any one of them away, you no longer have Christianity. You may have religion, but you no longer have Christianity. This uh, controversy went on between Princeton on one side that represented the traditional historical biblical perspective and Union Seminary in New York that presented the uh, modernist perspective, uh, the liberalism. Machen, J. Gershom Machen published a book called Liberalism and Christianity in which he points out that liberalism is not just a variant of Christianity, it isn't Christianity at all. It has a different view of God, of time, of man, of salvation, etc. The tension arose between, and it was debated back and forth, whether it's a tension between the traditionalists and the modernists, the advantage, whether it was a difference between those who were stuck, as it were, in traditional country theology as opposed to the modern city theology of New York. Well, it was a question of faith versus science in light of the uh, scientific discoveries of the 19th century and the fascination with scientific knowledge um, that you found in, across the sciences in the 19th century, the material sciences as well as what we call the soft sciences of psychology and otherwise. And uh, eventually it was called the, the difference between the husk and the kernel uh, the kernel is something that uh, we all share and the husk is something that we all have variations on. And eventually the proposition of the modernists was that all religions basically try to deal with the same thing with slightly different ways, sort of like skyscrapers all deal with the same ground and elevators and then the external form tends to be somewhat different. Schaefer came out of that, or went through that same battle and came out of it as a Bible-believing Christian who was faithful to the fundamentals that were presented, not all of them, but many of them. And in the absolute limits of Christianity, he discusses five or six basic fundamentals without which you do not have Christianity, as he said. And these are the personal existence of a triune God, if there's no God, then you have no Jesus, no sin, no Christ, no nothing. It doesn't fit. If you have no human being made in the image of God as a true person with choice and uh, uh, challenges, mandates to act, to create, etc. Uh, and the possibility of a contrary choice, then you have no guilt either. So you need a personal human being for Christianity to make any sense. You also have to have something of a virgin birth because if Jesus is not virgin birth, then he is not divine. And if he is not divine, he is not the judge of the universe who could take the judgment on himself in our place. Because in any legal proceedings, either the criminal goes to jail and pays the price or the judge pardons him and pays the price himself. 
usually not out of his pocket, but representing you all makes you all pay the price. That's what a judge does. That's what pardon means. So if a judge pardons somebody who is a uh, thief, then it implies that we all need to go out and buy locks for our doors because now there is a pardoned thief walking around. Uh, that's a price you pay. It doesn't sin and guilt do not just disappear. They have to be addressed, dealt with concretely in time and space. And of course, that's what Jesus did when he, the judge of the universe, took upon himself that separation from God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not a piece of theater, but real forsakenness by the Father when the Trinity shook in its foundation and the earth shook and the sun got dark and the temple curtain tore and uh, there was a real separation between the Father and the Son, the punishment that Adam and Eve were told would happen. They would surely die and Christ died. But all that's only possible if Christ is indeed virgin-born. That is, if he as a personality, as a unique person, is from of old, from everlasting, as Micah announced him in his uh, uh, Old Testament prophecy. And then from then on, further on, the inerrant scripture, not because that's a doctrinal point to hold, not because Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy 3.16, but rather because that's essential. And the inerrancy of scripture is not proven by a, verse, by a reference to a verse, but rather by reading it and seeing that it accurately describes a philosophic necessity, a historic reality, a space-time context, a logical consistency, an accuracy of the meaning of the words used. Uh, it is reliable and inerrant precisely because what is portrayed is a God whose interest is that he would be known, whose interest is that he could be discovered, trusted, loved, and believed. And so the inerrancy of scripture is a further uh, foundation without which you do not have Christianity. And the next one, I don't know where I am now, five or six, is the physical return of Christ. For as on earth, for as uh, Paul argues that if Christ only died on the cross, we are of all men most miserable because redemption is not complete. We are redeemed from guilt through the death of Christ. He's taken our place. But we are not redeemed unless our body gets redeemed, unless the universe as God created it will be redeemed. Only then is redemption full. And without that, we are of all men most miserable. So therefore, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The whole emphasis on the physical resurrection of Christ, and with it the coming of Christ onto earth in a physical body to give us a renewed bodies, and to welcome us who will not have to die on the day when Christ comes back, is an essential part without which you do not have Christianity. And so these are the fundamentals upon which Schaefer uh, built uh, his whole faith uh, and his life and his approach to human beings. For with such solid foundations, you can build all kinds of structures. But you need those foundations. And the structures he built, that's a picture of course, uh, the freed is the freedom with which Schaefer explored life itself and reached out to human beings of all kinds of shapes and problems and uh, woundedness and brokenness. He did not approach a person from the perspective of color of skin, of course, that's uh, clear. 
seems to me that's that's primitive that should be obvious but he didn't approach a person from the perspective of this is a totally depraved person or this is a sinner or this is a person who is not very intelligent he approached a person as a fellow human being who suffers speaking of negative things because we live in a fallen world that is fundamentally unfair to all of us some of us have more than we deserve and most of us have less than we deserve we don't live in a fair world this is there is no resolution to the present situation there's never the expression of being finally content with what is because that's what God intended what God intended is an eternal life for Adam and Eve without death a just world where things are adjusted to the character of God and his intentions and nothing is out of place that's not the kind of world we're familiar with but with the foundation that I outlined in points in Schaeffer's mindset he was able to be indeed the person who is filled with compassion and able to find curious interest in people that I would find a nuisance or boring or what 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 why why they talk about it that way I had to learn and I don't know if I've ever arrived that far as he went but the remarkable thing about Schaefer was precisely that out of his own understanding of Christianity and how he had become a Christian out of his own realization of the form and freedom tension the reality of both simultaneous together and out of the understanding from scripture that we live in a world in which things are not fair not just gave him the possibility precisely to welcome people not only into his home but in his into his life not only into his life but also in his thinking and so when somebody would come and uh, bring uh, objections to what Schaefer was teaching or what he was holding or how he was looking at things he would never say whatever you know I'm more educated than you are or older than you are or what right do you have to speak to me because I have a title but rather he would say tell me about it perhaps I've never considered what you are considering perhaps I could learn something from you perhaps I have never been in your shoes well not only perhaps I've never been in your shoes tell me where these shoes hurt or how these shoes are advantageous etc it was this humanness this willingness to talk the willingness to make do with partial answers in order to help somebody pursue something and see where it goes the willingness precisely to not come to those ideological conclusions which are so much on the market today in the church and outside of the church you know if you tear up the health care plan of Mr. Obama then everybody will be better off or if we allow me to say this if we all practice and safeguard the second amendment you can figure out what happens then especially when you realize that the maintenance and the practice of the second amendment rights prevent the maintenance and the practice of the First Amendment rights. When in Texas it is now permission to university students to come with concealed weapons into the classroom, it stifles intellectual challenges. Now mind you that's the most recent uproar. Uh, six months ago the uproar was that safe spaces were demanded by university students where the professors the presenters were not allowed to present anything that would be offensive or not rude but offensive in terms of a different idea than I'm familiar with or you tell me things I don't like to hear and so therefore university 
uh, administration, University of Missouri, etc., and other places were urged to fire somebody, not have them come back, not have them make a presentation because it would upset somebody. As if there is a third amendment, the right to not be offended. It is not. But thinking things through like that was what Schaefer grappled with. And the willingness to precisely consider many aspects at the same time and come to a partial conclusion. Uh, not the denial outright of first, second, third, fourth, fifth amendment rights, but precisely to see that things need to be weighed, considered, changed over time, depending on the people involved, etc., was part of that which made Schaefer so accessible, so desirable as a person that you could talk to. Uh, people would come to him precisely because, not because they agreed with him, but because they found him an interested person who was interesting to listen to and who himself was interested to learn and to discuss from, uh, to learn from the discussions. So the whole thing, the foundation, is precisely held together by scripture, by the confidence that the text of God's word ties together and gives us a comprehensive understanding of the real world in which every human being anywhere in the world already has to live and does live. And continues with the wonderful answer that this God takes, uh, engages himself in order to speak to us, in order to redeem us, and in order to give us a hope of life which changes everything. As Paul pointed out, as I said this, this morning in First Thessalonians at the end of the first chapter, that after three weeks of teaching in Thessalonica, uh, between making some tents, uh, then he was kicked out of town. But in those three weeks, he made it possible for the people in Thessalonica that listened to him to change their total outlook on life. From one that was subject to multitudes of idols, invented deities, forces behind natural events, uh, bowling gods uh, behind the thunder clouds, etc., to the one true and living God. And true and living is a really challenging proposition. In what way is the God of the Bible true? In what way is he the living God? Needs to be found out, discussed, dared to be questioned, and filled out and discovered. And putting your trust in this having changed from many islands to the living God, you put your trust in Christ Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead, the proclamation that there is life after death, in the physical appearance of Christ after the resurrection, in having lunch with his disciples, not as a spirit, but as a real body, telling Thomas to touch him to see that it is him the same whom he had known before and seen before, and then ascend, ascending and descending, appearing and disappearing for 40 days between the, among the disciples, before ascending to heaven, from which place, in like manner, he will return, as the apostles were told, is a totally different perspective and a wonder and the basis upon which you can then be free to doubt, to discover, to question, to experiment, to see what you should do in the complexity of life in a fallen world, in the complexity of human circumstances. Schaefer abhorred those who went beyond those foundations and who came up with utter convictions that allowed no room for alternatives. He was always against the 110 percenters, he would call them. You know, those that are more sure than 100%. Absolutists in any area, whether it's in the arts or whether it's in theology or whether it's in uh, 
advice for marriage or uh, business opportunities, uh, there is always the element of hesitation, of doubt, because I'm a creature living in a fallen world. My God is my Lord and He will provide and take care of it. Thus he did not side up with individual groups. Yes, he was a Presbyterian, part of the PCA denomination, but he was also against the merger of the PCA with the OPC because he felt that once the OPC come into the PCA they will there will be endless court cases, church court cases, about the 100% reformed orientation of certain uh, PCA uh, ministers. The, no, the OPC would judge the PCA because the OPC are more reformed than the others. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, it's this freedom from his own denominational rigidity that, uh, that made it possible for him to be invited by the Missouri Synod Lutherans to speak to them, or the Evangelical Presbyterians who have women elders. Why not address issues even when you have certain aspects that you might disagree with? And Schaefer was open. He didn't know quite how to apply that. Or the discussion I had last week in New York with somebody, and that's where I come back to New York, the question of how do we as Christians deal with the modern dilemma of gender identity. Of course the rigid 100% perspective is I already know what is right, and that is they are sinners and they shouldn't be part of the church. That's what some people would say. But the situation is far more complex because there are not only biological contributions that may well be possible of which we may know something and perhaps not everything because we don't know everything. But there are also social cultural elements to that. You know, when you create a situation where children have no identity in their family and need to go out and seek their own identity among their Twitter friends, or among those who teach sexual education and where all options are always presented as open you may create situations in which people are more likely to become homosexual rather than uh, being it for some biological reason. But even if it is a biological reason it isn't automatically reducible to personal sin the way uh, Certain books point out that if you repent of it, then you will be free. In a fallen world, you have an unresolved reality. You have tensions, you have problems. Uh, one of my problems is nearsightedness. That's why I wear glasses. That's a very minor problem because it can be fixed, as you see. But we all have certain problems of bad behavior, of tensions, of uh, not being able to tolerate noise of not knowing how to relate to small children and their demands, etc. Some things we can learn to deal with, other things we may not be able to learn to deal with. And we must allow for that kind of freedom to, to urge us to pursue issues further, possibilities to go back to Scripture, to ask God for the Spirit's wisdom on how to deal with these situations, rather than to come down with these 100% or 110% rigidity that is so characteristic of much of our modern age. I conclude that, or yeah, I conclude that this harshness comes fundamentally from the mentality that they're always winners and losers and there's nothing in between. It's like a New York prize fight. You know, you either knock the other guy out or he knocks you out, but you fight until it works that way. 
or in the present political discussion it is are you conservative enough or are you a democrat or a republican and you are demanded your fidelity to these rigid categories is basically demanded instead of being open to on this issue I vote with those on that issue I vote with the others which in a two-party system is very difficult to accomplish I realize that and that's where the reality of uh, a parliamentary system with several parties forming coalitions in order to arrive at compromise solutions for the time being so that next year we can work with, with beyond that compromise to reach a further compromise that is yet better than what was now possible can be accomplished and it was this mindset that uh, was part of Schaefer's thinking in part of that came from the experience that he had when he went to Europe when he realized that human beings are human beings they're not first Christians they're first human or non-Christians they're first of all human beings out of that grew his interest in people whether they believed or not with a longing that they would come to believe yes with a constant discussion of important issues the outcome of which if you were able to follow it through would be the choice the individual would make to believe or not believe but all along the way there was the enjoyment of a human being the questions and doubts the troubles a person went through grief over the pain they suffered but a profound love for such persons it is this that added to Schaefer's or shaped Schaefer coming out of the separatist movement where there was only we and them into a situation where you could speak with a person no matter what background they had no matter what arguments they had no matter who they were because what is true in the universe under God is what is of primary importance not winning the boxing match or the uh, apologetic battle or uh, approval in terms of numbers and those kind of things which only matter if you only have winners and losers uh, the whole approach that Schaefer uh, experienced, practiced, developed is precisely one of love and attention to the individual person in need and in a fallen world we're all in need. Thank you very much.